Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we chat with authors of all sorts and, well, all kinds of books here, too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was the, one of the toughest things I, I had to do at the beginning was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important, is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But really to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there, because the name of your book is The Captain Class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? I was completely shocked. I I had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work, I mean, I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s, all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. And, you know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching. You know, it's got to be coaching, but to my great surprise, there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it, was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player in every single case, was the leader of the team or the captain. 
And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. And people forget that. We talk about the the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns, you know, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable. But without the verb, it's not a sentence. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains played in bringing these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And you know, back then, defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots, and he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And, you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with with leadership. You know, in fact, he, he turned down the hall of fame, you know, when he was inducted, he said, he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team and all his effort, everything went inside that team and inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him, they understood him completely and they would do anything for him. And, on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he's just the epitome of great leadership. And he was un- misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took him straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of of the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played even meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you should go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event. It was incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball. Missed up his timing, he missed. And St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play. And they quickly inbounded the ball to him at, at midcourt. Now he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket, off the court, on the other side. He was about 96 feet from the basket, and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance, and he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition. The thing about it is that was consistent for him, and what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people you know, that's doing something together thinks that one person in that group is giving 100% effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, there are going to be serious marginal gains that you will you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group and relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole deflate gate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. No doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent. Could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But, you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And about the same time, his mother passed away. And, you know, he had uh, these hard knocks. And, you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really took him seriously. He was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But, you know, he he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But, you know, I don't think anyone really thought that that he was going to become the, the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think the the most important thing really is the way he played. Now, he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous, gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. Some, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not. His blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that Russell had, which is that he he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning, and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done, and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their team. I, thought, I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. I mean, he sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's, he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch 
to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture. He listens. And he has these interactions all the time. And he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized is that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute. They feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in and got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send this link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, and for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper, because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhard Snobs and Narcissists interpersonal reactions to excessive egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think, I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but 
I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said if you walked into practice, you would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence, a, a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but Really, the, the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be, can be uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even (laughs) agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots. I mean, he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team and the team's result. That's where all his satisfaction came from, and it came much more than his satisfaction from having – more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I, I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him, but he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand this hall of fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say, this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any – I think they knew that, that their – whatever their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people, and that you can't really divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book because it's such a good quote, and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management – is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how, as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup and you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender, and you know, she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She, 
you know, would, would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates. And she, you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about. And it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway, they would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up. And it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates. And they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a, a bank account that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about. And it had great power when she did it in competition and made the team better. Let's talk about football now and, and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steeler teams. Who is Jack Lambert and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw when they think of that powerhouse Steeler team. Why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are, uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these, these elite captains knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field. So they had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a, a game, I believe in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. People had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers, and they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals, and he wound up playing probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly, so it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game, he had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up, and you know he went out there, and of course the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers, and I asked him, why didn't you, know, you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field or change his uniform at halftime or something? And he said, you don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how 
uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did, uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come. Author of The Captain Class, this is Our American Stories. back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted it out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls. And none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would, he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to, kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's the ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. 
No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it to Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan. But what was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the uh, greatness of the Patriots, but... You know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and, and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in, but later on I after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate, and there's a lot of, of love between them, but they knew how to fight, and they would fight all the time. They would come into conflict about tactics. It was never personal. It was always about how the team was playing. You know, and Belichick would, would go to team meetings and rip Brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made. And Brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team. But, you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember that first season, Tom Brady came, he was a six round draft pick. No one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach and together they became two of the legends of football but I don't think you can separate them I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important and I think the message for coaches and people managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that you've got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs and it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. 
I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and you know that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the, the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in, in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduce conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is – creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it, they could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That's it. You know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, it doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, then basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or you know, being the spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because frankly, it's a hard job. Being a great leader, you know, and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult. And Anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others. 
Well, and this book will help others and assist them too. We've been talking to Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and author of The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some... Everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change, and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist-related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang-related and racist tattoos for free. And there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because um, it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face. And he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was willing, and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger, and, and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so we discussed lasers. But the bottom line was, I really could see the hurt, you know, that this guy was going through because he had done this, you know, gotten these tattoos, and that he needed. He just wanted to. Uh, do his job and not have people follow him or, you know, and, and I could see that. And so my wife kind of looked at me and said, you know, you can help people. And so we made the post and this post that we made, I think that was on January something. It was mid January. Um, and we basically said, if you have hate or, uh, racist tattoos, gang or racist tattoos, that we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. 
and to the point where like I had to turn off notifications on my phone so did my wife my wife she didn't even know what viral meant she was just like what's going on you know and I was explaining to her I said hey this thing you you know the post you just did is going viral and she thought she was like how did I get a virus you know like she didn't even know what viral was so they needed some help once that happened I'd say, you know, we probably got 1,000 inquiries to uh, get help. Then we saw that that there was a need, and we started Redemption, Inc. Um, We had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo, she kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption Inc. because it was it's less to say than random acts of tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it, and um, it just and, and then that took off actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives, giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You service? know. The bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. That that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling or, like, a lot of them are are scared because, number one, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me. And a few of them even travel from far away so far. And by the way, so far I've helped, personally helped 22 people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two. Yeah, they're, at first they're a little scared, but then once I get them, you know, in my chair, I talk to them like people, and, and you know, I, I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were, I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like, Somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them, join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. It, the sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and, you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing. And it, and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20-something years of tattooing. You know, people people do feel that they have to, I guess, and so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody, and so, you know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I, like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing 
that we do is we make them feel comfortable and, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media, if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, they're, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're... They get mad when people quit, and and it really is true. You know, blood in, blood out. Like a lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, "I don't feel like doing this anymore." It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, "Hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today." You know what I mean? Like, like we don't do that, so that they come when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but. We make sure that, hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff, and, you know, they, those guys... Kind of, I guess it's uh, uh, a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or I, I, it, it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, <laughs> you know, like you don't tattoo them and say property up. Like nobody should be property of anybody. And, and you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to. You know, it's almost out of a, a necessity or, or even scare. Because they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done, or felt, you know, the shame of, of uh, even hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made a mistake 
More of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes. These folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others, but also honest about their desire to change. And many of the stories are actually very similar. I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, the sad thing is they're all like they're all, you know, pretty much the same. And and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody. And um, you know, of course, part of the thing was I didn't want them. You know, if they want to tell me, then they can. But we don't. I don't make anybody say anything. You know, because. They've already been judged enough. I have so far seen a couple of the people that I've tattooed moved on, and you know, they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms. And one of the kids, Brandon, that I tattooed, he's engaged now and getting ready to get married. And, and you know, he uh. He he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo. It was really fun. He, he traveled a little bit to uh, come see us, but he was extremely... Actually, I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice, and, and you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he, he explained how he felt the shame of, of having to do what he had to do, but if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again, and, and again... Who wants to be a victim? And these people are truly making attempts to change. But, unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It, it, it's all been uh, pretty fun, and, and um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that, that you know, they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just, wow. <laughs> like even the, the stuff going viral, and then, you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because you know not everybody the sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody there's always going to be somebody that says hey that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help it's sad that that these people believe them i didn't want to see those things so i had to separate myself from it it's kind of sad you know in my mind forgiving somebody is is more important you know to, and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions that it, it kind of got to me and, and you know, and it kind of, it kind of gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because uh, like these people, 
these people, they, they've already done the work. You know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step. You know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles let's just say that I, I i'm comfortable with that <laughs> i help them remove obstacles they I, I believe that the people that uh and i truly really believe that that they've already done what they needed to do i didn't help them change they did it themselves I, i've tried to stay as humble as i possibly can like you know i have had people come up to me and you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, and it, it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face, but like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy, I'm just the last guy in line, and for some reason, I got picked, you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I got picked to be that guy that is, so to speak, helping people, and, and when in fact they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that someone has to do it. Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved? Yes, actually. Yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up. And um, in fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state, like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate, uh, the, you know, the the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out. And, and not saying that I'm better than somebody else. I kind of believe that, like, for example, if someone in Indiana needs help, well, of course, that's, you know, pretty far away from Maryland. And, you know, they're not going to come here. But if I have somebody in, in Indiana that can help them, then I'll send them to them. But I also want to be able, you know, to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be give them a good service. So we actually look, look at their websites, look at their work, and, hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption Inc. Whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. And by the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave... And help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys, inmates. My goodness, you got to choose sometimes. Not in a gang, you're going to get beat. You got to pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemptioninc, and that's I-N-K.org. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc. story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell a lot of stories about family, lots more about generosity. This next story combines both. Howard Yusuk is the Manhattan Institute's Vice President for Research and Publications and author of the forthcoming book, Who Killed Civil Society? Today, Howard shares with us a personal story, how the agency saved my father. The biggest mystery of my childhood was the question of how my father had survived his. Though the details were fuzzy, the facts seemed clear. An auto accident outside Trenton, in which his parents were seriously injured, orphaned, not long after in South Philadelphia, in the depth of the Depression. Later raised in foster homes, and yet, by 18, off by streetcar to engineering school, and after World War II, to life in the middle class. What had made it possible? The most intriguing explanation involved something he called the agency. Once a year, he'd say, the agency took us to get a suit, one pair of long pants, one pair of knickers, or the agency even paid to get my teeth fixed. In a thousand ways, the world of my father's childhood amid the row houses of South Philly, a world where fish were kept alive in the bathtub so they'd stay fresh, where teenagers enjoyed classical music, where sunflower seeds were the junk food of choice, is as gone as any European Jewish shtetl. But to me, the agency was the most distant part of it. My own father, it appeared, had been raised without parents and without the support of public funds under the auspices of a charitable organization. What exactly was the agency? My father provided the crucial clue. Once a month, he recalls, an older woman connected with the agency would arrive in a chauffeur-driven black Cadillac to check on him. He remembered her name, Mrs. Sternberger. I found her traces a few blocks from Independence Hall at the Balch Institute for Ethnic Studies, which houses the records of Philadelphia's myriad Jewish charities. On the founding board of directors of the Juvenile Aid Society, I discovered was a woman named Matilda K. Sternberger. And looking through the Juvenile Aid Society's pile of typed case records, I turned up one from March 2, 1934, proceedings of its placement committee's monthly meeting, which took up the case of Bernard Husick, my father, and his elder sister, Stella. The library will close in 10 minutes. It's a powerful thing to come across such a record only minutes before library closing time. It's sobering to read about one's own family as the object of intervention and help, especially when you're used to identifying with those providing the help, and even more so when such records contain powerful revelations as these did. Turns out my father's parents had not died at the same time as I'd been told. His father had outlived his mother and become a single father responsible for two young children aged five and 10 in the early years of the Depression. I learned that in June 1932, three years before the Social Security Act became law, at a time when state and local governments provided only short-term emergency relief, my grandfather had first turned to private charity for support. His situation was 
more like that so common today, a single-parent family in search of help, a family for which outsiders were deciding whether help was deserved, and if so, what form that help should take. By the time it considered the case of my father, I learned the Juvenile Aid Society had been making those kind of decisions for more than 20 years. It had grown out of something called the Young Women's Union, which was part of a movement beginning in the 1880s in which, as Philadelphia's Jewish exponent later wrote, the noxious tenements of South Philadelphia were invaded by an unlikely little army of well-bred, carefully nurtured Jewish young ladies from the safely upper-middle-class environs of Spring Garden Street. Led by banking heiress Bella Loeb Selig, the women's union began to move from children's recreation and nursery programs to an effort its members called baby snatching or child saving, by which they meant persuading the juvenile court, which they helped found in 1901, to release children in trouble into their custody. To handle these kids, the women's union gave birth to the Juvenile Aid Society, the agency, in 1911. By 1932, it was a big organization, paying for between 350 children to 450 each year to be raised in private foster homes. It was part of a larger system of some 80 private nonprofit and religious organizations which cared for the vast majority of abused, abandoned, or orphaned children in Pennsylvania. Through the Juvenile Aid Society, the wealthy German Jewish women on its board expressed their sense of responsibility for the children of poor Russian immigrants, their generic term for Eastern European Jews. So it was that women named Deutsch and Guckenheimer, members, many of them, of the city's grand Moroccan-style Temple of Reform Judaism, Congregation Rodef Shalom, came to take some responsibility for children named Lazarowitz and Katz, then piling into South Philadelphia and crowding it with what ultimately would be more than 200 small dark synagogues squeezed in among the row houses. These charitable women can be thought of as Jewish Victorians, combining a religious impulse with the Victorian commitment to child saving. They were moved by the Talmudic injunction that the blessed man is the man that brings up an orphan boy or girl until marriage, and fearing that the Russians would abandon Judaism as they acculturated to America, they required all children they assisted to attend religious schools. For them, religion was the guarantor of the bourgeois values and the self-discipline they cherished. Moral behavior, the agency's literature observes, is the result of right habit and daily practice. Cultivate the child's natural desires for leadership, for justice, for independence, for self-respect, for hero worship. Morality is an inner driving force. Religion is an inner light and revelation. These cannot be forced from without. Open the windows of the soul through which the inner splendor may shine. The agency saw itself as a retail helper, so to speak, intervening with individual families, not to change the social system, but to help children find their place in it. Its leaders were willing not just to support foster homes, but to make a personal commitment to visit children themselves and assess foster families, to form personal bonds with those being helped. Their meticulous records note the names of the child and the name of the visitor. Miss Baum visiting Rose Heimowitz, Mrs. Loeb visiting Benjamin Chernikoff, Mrs. Zucker visiting Meyer Balchin. 
They were a small group taking on a big task. There had been 15,000 Jews in Philadelphia in 1880. By 1920, there were 200,000. The agency's main strategy was child placement, foster care, which it championed as a preferred alternative to orphanages. Children in bad circumstances would be taken in by loving families fairly paid for their efforts. As a 1919 Russell Sage Foundation report put it, child placing in families was the most important development in child welfare work during the last half of the 19th century. In March of 1934, one of the children placed by this movement would be my own father. And after the break, we'll hear more of the story, How the Agency Saved My Father, from Howard Yusuk who has written an entire book about private charity called Who Killed Civil Society. Look for it on Amazon in the coming months. More on Howard's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Howard Yusuk's story of how a private Jewish charity known as the Agency saved his father from what might have been a terrible life as an orphan. The Juvenile Aid Society's solution to the inevitable danger of child abuse in private homes rested on the personal efforts of the agency's volunteer home-finding and placement committees. Its home-finding committee rejected twice as many potential replacement homes as it approved. Each board member visited 30 to 40 children each month. The agency readily increased its payment to the foster mother of the mischievous Bass Boys, aged 8 and 13, from $22 to $25 a month. Come on! Cry! <laughs> It granted an increase as well to Jack Ginsburg's foster mother in view of his mental retardation and bedwetting. 23 years after the agency's birth, founding director Matilda Cohn Sternberger first visited Bernard Husick and his elder sister Stella of 2328 South 3rd Street. The heiress to a fortune her mother's family had made selling Civil War uniforms, Mrs. Sternberger was by then widowed and had given up the grand mansion on 15th Street, where she'd lived with her husband, to share an apartment with her sister Dorothy, also widowed, just off Rittenhouse Square. Then as now, it was among Philadelphia's best addresses, boasting a doorman and out front four cast-iron hitching posts. She routinely supervised 30 children and sometimes reported more visits than that in a given month. 
My father's foster care was a result of the death of his mother and the financial decline of his father with the onset of the Depression. His father, Abraham Husid, was a presser in clothing plants on Philadelphia's Hart Street, which housed dozens of small family-owned firms in four- and five-story buildings. Jaffe Brothers, Cantor Brothers, Saul Glazer and Company, and which today houses similar firms employing Asian immigrants. Though he spoke only Yiddish and could not read or write even that, my grandfather was part of Philadelphia's $1 billion a year textile industry, then the largest in any city in the world. When Abraham Husserl first requested a plan in June 1932, 20 months after his wife's death, the agency was sympathetic. It regularly provided widowers with support, even with a housekeeper to hold a household together, and it readily approved his request. But he did not use the money to keep the household together. The record of the meeting of the Juvenile Aid Society of Philadelphia in March of 1934 tells the story of a period in my father's life so bleak that he would never find it easy to discuss. He'd speak of himself in the third person. That was a scared little boy. The agency's records make clear why, referring to his father Abraham. Mr. Husick's third wife had turned them out of the home because he was unemployed and she was unwilling and unable to care for the children. Both children were very unhappy in the home of their stepmother who mistreated them. All three the 55-year-old father with a 13-year-old daughter and the 8-year-old son wandered around with the children boarded, presumably with money from the agency, in a series of different homes. At other times, Abraham Husick apparently did not place his children anywhere. It was depression time. He couldn't get a job, my father would recall. I remember the crowds of people. Who wants to work for 25 cents an hour? Who wants to work for 20 cents an hour? Despite it all, my father remembers his father warmly from those times as a man who told him stories, took him to synagogue, and whom he recalls rolling cigarettes, father and son using the rolling machine together. One of those cigarettes smoldered one evening in Abe Husick's mattress in the boarding house where he and his children were staying. And when the mattress caught fire, only his sister Stella awoke, leading her father and brother, as in a dream, to the street and saving their lives. That situation came to the attention of the placement committee of the agency, meeting in room 209 of the Jewish Federation building on 9th Street in Philadelphia in March 1934. The report of the proceedings of that day was a harsh indictment of my grandfather. Placement is now being requested, reads the report, because Mr. Husick has proven to be a shiftless, irresponsible person, and it is necessary that a permanent plan be made for the children to give them a measure of security. Even after their placement, Stella and Bernard continued to visit their father. On New Year's Eve 1935, the day he died, Stella found him, unconscious, on the floor of the rooming house in which he was living above a butcher's shop at 4th and Wolf in South Philly. He had complained for a while, my father recalls, of rectal pain. When the 15-year-old girl and her 10-year-old brother worked their way through the bureaucracy and corridors of the Philadelphia General Hospital the next morning, Someone would explain to them in Yiddish that he was tot, dead. But the brilliant girl would overhear the doctors and remember 60-plus years later, prostate hypertrophy leading to the inability to urinate with blood poisoning the result. One can only wonder whether, had she and her brother still been living with him, whether they might have saved him. The condition was surgically treatable even then. 
and whether there would have been no burial on New Year's Day 1936 in a pauper's grave, such was the fate of the shiftless and irresponsible in 1935. As for me, my middle name is Abel in memory of Abe. Whatever his failings, my father did not fail to honor him as Jewish custom would have it. And Abe's death provided a warning for me more than 60 years later because a physician dutifully listed prostate hypertrophy as the cause of his death. I was led to consider whether that swelling could have been owed to prostate cancer and to seek the tests that identified my own cancer at the earliest, most treatable stage. By the time of their father's death, the agency had arranged a long-term placement for Bernard and Stella at the home of a barber and his wife, Louis and Miriam Grisport, who owned a corner row house at 3rd and Fitzgerald Streets near the southern edge of South Philly. One factor that made the agency's placement system work was the fact that low-income Philadelphians commonly weren't apartment dwellers but instead lived in and owned their own row homes. They had mortgages to pay and, with the Depression, were willing to rent rooms to a variety of comers, foster children included. In keeping with agency rules, my father and his sister had to have their own rooms, a luxury at the Grisboards, where a married couple with a child boarded together in a single room. My father took advantage of his tiny room to have a desk at which to study, even to set up a chemistry set. In other respects, he and his sister were better off than their street corner peers who were not in the agency's care. The agency provided medical care and psychological testing. My father can recall being much affected by hearing the psychologist who tested him at age 10 remarked, this is a pretty smart kid. The agency sent its wards eggs and milk, beds and bedding, and it paid for two weeks at the Jewish Federation's summer camp. My father's memories include the names of the cabins, each named for a different college, including D for the Drexel Institute of Technology, to which he would eventually take the streetcar from the Grisboards to attend. For her part, Mrs. Sternberger's hope was to lead the children she supervised up the social ladder. My father's strongest memory of Mrs. Sternberger's talks with him in the Grisboards' front parlor was her urging that when he succeeded as an adult, he must always remember his own charitable obligations. She would recite all these other cases that she had had, other people who had been like me, who had now made it and were big contributors. My father did not forget the advice of Mrs. Sternberger, never failing to raise money each year for Jewish charities in his adopted city of Cleveland, where he had indeed become financially successful. Nor did his sister Stella forget the advice of her benefactress either, Continuing even in her late 70s to volunteer, she traveled back to South Philadelphia to teach English to new Asian immigrants, often passing by the scenes of her own childhood along the way. As for the agency itself, it had, by 1942, been merged into a Philadelphia-wide Association for Jewish Children and ultimately became part of the Jewish Children's and Family Service, provider of a great range of assistance to many including hundreds of children at places, now with financial support from a county contract in foster care. But because it does not receive all its funding from government, it continues to chart its own way in developing programs as well. It even continued to receive funds from the estates of some of the board members of my father's era, including, as recently as 1993, $23,000 from the sale of utility stock that had belonged to the estate of Matilda K. Sternberger. 
The money, Mrs. Sternberger dictated, should go toward the purchase of radios, televisions, books for the blind, or other recreational devices for the infirm elderly. Mrs. Sternberger had anticipated the agency's future emphasis. It would go on to assist some 4,000 Jewish elderly each year and employ 500 volunteers as friendly visitors to them. It no longer uses volunteers to visit the children for whom it cares, and it must not incorporate religion into its approach to those children. A former vice president of the agency, warm and enthusiastic and well-versed in its history, once told me he believes that volunteers wouldn't have that much to offer the black and Hispanic children of drug-addicted mothers for whom the agency's paid staff now cares. The cultural barriers, he said, are just too great. Maybe so, but one wonders whether they are any greater than those that separated two orphaned children in South Philadelphia from a woman arriving in her black Cadillac all those many years ago. And thanks to Howard Yusuk and this terrific story about his father. Both of their stories and the story of American generosity here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. Just give us your email. We'll give you our five best stories every week. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.